Welcome to The Good, The Bad, and The Science, the show that breaks down the science of television and movies with a comedian and a scientist. Today we're discussing Queen of Meth. So I'll ask about addiction, Tom Arnold, and, well, yeah, meth. Hi everyone, I'm your host Ethan Edinburgh, and I've got two wonderful guests joining me today. My first guest is an Emmy-winning actor, writer, and comedian who has blessed the earth by creating shows like Mr. Show and the increasingly poor decisions of Todd Margaret. He is a personal hero of mine, so I'm trying not to yell as I welcome to the show David Cross. Hi Ethan, thank you for having me, and thank you for listing the two credits that are uh, over my shoulder. <laughs> Yeah, I noticed that immediately. Uh, I need those posters now. That's awesome. I have like this weird bland wall next to me. Are you reporting from home? Uh, yes, uh, I'm, oh. I'm in Brooklyn. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, cool. Yeah, I saw you had some shows in the New York area uh, mm -hmm. because your like, tour got postponed. Is that right? Yeah, we um, it, it was a difficult decision and uh, but ultimately the right one. But there were so many people were not understandably comfortable with going into a packed room that, you know, might not have the best ventilation or whatever. And, yeah. uh, I realized also that I'm, you know, kind of in a bubble here in New York where it's very safe, uh, you know, in a relative sense and people are doing what they were asked to do and people are, most people are vaccinated and everybody wears mm -hmm. masks and all that stuff. And, you know, it's just not like that in other parts of the country. And so rather than, you know, deal with all that, I just said, okay, I'll postpone this until the spring, you know, uh, hopefully yeah. spring, um, uh, knock on wood. But, uh, yeah, it was a bummer cause, uh, uh, I was ready to go, but I am going to keep doing the shows that I had, booked in New York because I was doing, you know, one or two a nice. week and, um, you know, getting ready for the tour and having a blast. And, and I'm going to, I'll tape, uh, the last couple shows that I had planned before I was going to go out and, you know, maybe I'll put it out on my website or put it somewhere, you know, cause a Sweet. lot of it is material that I'm not going to be doing in the spring of 2022 probably. So, but, right. you know, and I actually wanted to ask you one of the, I had so many questions written down to ask you and I, I know we're not gonna have time for it we got to talk about meth but <laughs> i did want your take on you vaccine too, but anyway go ahead oh of course uh we i wanted your take on vaccine hesitancy as well because i do have several people in my life as i'm sure you do as many people do that that are you know hesitant and and it's tough to discuss it with them so have you encountered that is there a way you can you know guide that conversation i i have i've only um uh with you know not not people on the periphery but people that i'm i'm close with i've only had that discussion with one uh and by extension two people because of a, a person and their spouse um who are now vaccinated um but it was uh yeah it was hard and tricky because I'm, I have to, uh, you know, you have to be, uh, uh, diplomatic and not, uh, uh, insulting and, and it's, uh, and it's frustrating because, um, I, you know, I can't speak for anybody else, but for me, 
I don't. And, and let me preface this by saying I do understand the hesitancy. I don't. This isn't the, the you know, this isn't like I refusing to wear a mask. This is I get it. I do understand. I don't share those convictions or those fears. I got vaccinated as soon as I could, um, as did my wife. And as you know, I, when my uh, daughter turns five and uh, the vaccine's available, she'll be first in line. And uh, I don't share those feelings, but I do get them. I do understand them. And I understand, you know, uh, I, I mean, our government lies to us daily and has since its inception and did it before I was born. We'll continue to do it after I die. The government constantly lies. They've experimented on people. <laughs> That's a fact. Um, so I, I understand the hesitancy. I don't have it. Um, and, you know, that was what I had to bring into the conversation. Um, and uh, ultimately, you know, we prevailed but because uh, um, they did get vaccinated, and I think they're happy for it. And uh, yeah, I was going to say, nice work. It, I mean, you, it actually worked. You had a successful, convincing conversation. It sounds like. Yeah, I mean, it, again, wasn't easy, and it was long, and it was. Uh, but it was also, you know, you the things that like I say on stage, I I I couldn't say I wouldn't couldn't and wouldn't say that uh, and have that attitude to a person I was sitting in front of you know, trying, trying to convince them why the vaccine is a, why it's, you know, necessary. Okay. Well, I, I, I want to get to our next guest. Of course, I have, I have one final question for you and I promise I'll leave you alone and we can just really talk about meth, mm -hmm. which I know everybody's dying to hear about crystal meth. Um, but I, I have to say, you know, just thanks for all the brilliant work that you've done over the years. And as I was reviewing it all and what it meant to me this morning, I wanted to ask if you had advice for young writers because your consistency through the years is astounding to me. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, um, I, my advice for, for writers uh, and stand-ups are, are, it's kind of the same, which is, um, and I know it's a bit trite, but you just have to write and you have to perform as much as possible. And in, in this, you know, in this day and age where you can put things up on, uh, uh, you know, you could do Instagram live or TikToks or any of those things or put something, you have a YouTube channel. Um, there's no, there's no excuse not to do it. And, um, there have been plenty of people, uh, over the past several years who've gotten, uh, not just success, but deserved success and are writing for, you know, uh, late night TV hosts and, and different, uh, satirical, uh, web zines. Um, and, uh, uh, and, you know, you just put your stuff out there and just do it. And for standups, uh, you know, you've got to get on stage and you just have to take any, any opportunity you can. And you will also gravitate towards as as happens in any business or a creative endeavor you'll gravitate towards like-minded people and i guarantee you will all help each other uh both creatively and then um uh you know literally helping them getting work is one one person gets work they help others get work and um and so just get out there and do it
Love it. Okay. Well, thank you for being on the show once again. I'm super excited to speak to you and to speak to our second guest. He is a professor at the Elson S. Floyd College of Medicine. Welcome to the show, Dr. Michael McDonald. Thanks, Ethan. Glad to be here. I'm so happy you're here. You are also the director of PRISM, which sounds like uh, you're the evil villain in a Marvel movie. So can you explain what PRISM is? So that's a good question. We actually just switched to that acronym from an acronym that I just recently started remembering. So I'm pretty sure that's promoting research <laughs> initiatives um, on substance abuse and mental health. And so our work really focuses on innovative, positive, strength-based interventions that we develop in collaboration with communities to help uh, improve the quality of care for uh, mental health disorders and substance use disorders. Excellent. Okay, that sounds uh, really beneficial. And I should also mention that you are a leader of the Center for Cannabis Policy Research and Outreach. So did you smoke a big fat doobie this morning? <laughs> no, man, no way. So yeah, I'm the head of our cannabis center here, which stems from like research on hemp and how hemp can be used um, in industrial applications all the way to some of the projects that I have, which are looking at how cannabis and especially one thing I'm sure we're going to probably talk about with methamphetamine is potency or purity and how in our current legal market for those of us who are in uh, decriminalized states for cannabis how yeah the cannabis that you can get a hold of right now is totally different than the cannabis that um, some of us had were able to get on the legal market quite a time ago. Yeah, I've definitely noticed that. We actually had an episode about mm. Chopped 420, a new cooking with weed show, and had a cannabis expert on. And he was kind of saying the same thing, that weed has gotten a lot more potent. And I don't know how you feel about it, David, what's your, what's your weed usage or what it used to be, etc. But for me, it's like, I'm not a fan of this uh, new yeah. weed. You know, when I... Uh, sit down to smoke a joint. I'd rather be able to actually smoke a joint instead of like two hits of it. And then I'm, I've, I have to take a break from everything in my life. I used to smoke a bunch of weed, but it was not uh, remotely comparable to what's out there now. Um, <laughs> I don't really smoke much anymore. Uh, I'm just not comfortable. I also was never, even though I smoked it a bunch, I was never uh, good at it. <laughs> Meaning <laughs> I, my chemicals react <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. Better to other different chemicals than than uh, than weed, and um, and even though it was it, actually, you know, what, once I became more known, it was more difficult because uh, I would already get paranoid and antisocial, and then if I was out, I mean, I, I the idea of having a conversation or trying to have a conversation with somebody, and, and I'm not cognizant uh mm -hmm. is, you know became a nightmare and i would just you know run away yeah yeah i feel like that fairly often and then regret my decisions um mike is are, are is that what you guys are doing is that the leading priority for you is making weed uh less potent well no i don't know i mean that's a legislative thing right we i mean we uh we just try to give policymakers the information they that we can and the tough thing in the united states is like well, you, we can all go down here in Washington and buy uh, like a product that has 70% THC in it. I can't use it in my research because it's federally illegal. And if I, as a university researcher, use it in my research, our whole university could lose all of our uh, federal funding. We could lose all of our student loans. Does that um, seem crazy? So, 
does that seem crazy? Yeah, to you? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's totally crazy. Yeah. Um, that seems crazy so to me. Yeah, it's like how do we tell you as a consumer if that's safe to use or not? Because it's not the same product. My friend always says it's like the difference between strawberry and strawberry pop tarts um, from the natural like grow plant that's out there. Um, but we can't tell you if it's going to increase your risk of developing a psychotic disorder. We can't tell you if it's weed is it, you know, we used to say to folks, yeah, you know, cannabis, maybe it's not that addictive, um, you know, the same way that crystal meth is. Now, though, when you have a higher potency product, we just don't know. We don't know. We do see rates of cannabis use disorders going up and up and up. Um, and uh, so I don't want to be like a reefer madness person. But we, we're stuck, sort of. We, we, we just pr try to provide information to those researchers to folks to, to let them make the decisions about both the individuals, you know, individuals, parents, um, but also the policymakers. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. The break is over. Here we go, back to the show about science. Man, and are we getting closer on that to some sort of federal regulation? Because I agree with David, it does seem absolutely bonkers, especially from a educational standpoint or from a research standpoint that you're not able to, you know, do experiments or, or find mm -hmm. results and data on something that we're all, you know, half the country is using legally. Yeah, exactly. So I think we're moving in the right direction. So they, it used to be I could only as a researcher get legal weed from one place, the University of Mississippi. Hmm. They've now approved three other um, companies to produce legal cannabis for research, but I still have to go through this cumbersome process with the DEA, with the National Institute on Drug Abuse, um, to be able to get that those products and the products that we're gonna get are still not the same. So we're making a good amount of progress. Almost every professional society in addiction, uh, the all, certainly all the trade organizations, all support um, what we call descheduling cannabis or changing. It's considered a schedule one drug. So if I want to do research on heroin, I have to get the same approvals for cannabis as I do for heroin to be able to access it as a wow. researcher. And that's just, I mean, yeah, right. It doesn't make common sense. So we're, there's a, a number of different plans that are out there. There's been a number of bills that have been put forth in the Senate and the House. Um, and the, we still have yet to see, you know, a big, a, a bunch of movement so that we could safely go down and and legally purchase cannabis and then, you know, with appropriate approvals, use that um, cannabis in our research. So I think we still have a long way to go, um, but we've have made some steps in the last couple of years that are in the right direction. Well, um, as we shoot into our meth talk, uh, David, I wanted to get your experience with hard drugs. I know you tried crack once. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, and was, uh... first and last. Yeah, it was uh, fantastic. It was, uh, it was, there's a reason why I never did it again. I do not have uh, an addictive personality. Um, and I've done lots of drugs and, you know, been able to walk away. And, uh, and that was one, you know, I didn't just smoke it once. I smoked like an entire night into the next morning. Um, and we were going to get another batch. And I, I, We'll never forget this as long as I live. I remember everything about it. I remember where I was and all that. And I was like, and I wanted to. I was like, if I, if, if we do this, if I, if we get by another, uh, you know, buy some more, then I think my life is going to permanently change for the worse. And I had a show to do that night too. And, and uh, I'd also made a promise to myself 
that I would never not do a show because, or if I ever did not do a show because I was too fucked up, then I would have to go into rehab. I'd have to put myself in rehab. And I didn't want to do that. And I, and I was like, if I don't leave now, my life will be altered in a very negative way. And, um, and I, and I stopped. That's not to say that I didn't do it, you know, all night. And as I said, into the morning with people, I would never spend 10 seconds with outside of that scenario. Um, and, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, um, it's an amazing, amazingly effective drug for sure. Yeah. I, I mean, that, that segues us actually into a couple questions that I had watching this show. I mean, one is the addictive personality. I wanted to ask you about that, Mike, like if that, if that's something that's just in us genetically, or if that comes about when we're introduced to these substances, how does that work? Yeah, no, I think this show did a great job of of uh, documenting like every single risk factor we know about uh, for addiction and then the sort of process and how it takes control of your life, even when you think you're in control of it. And then the aftermath, although there was a little bit of bias, I think, on the aftermath, making it sort of minimizing some of the some of the consequences from this like citywide um, and, and multi-statewide drug ring. So, so yeah, so I think um, David already identified one, one piece of, of risk for addiction. So one factor we know influences, uh, so I don't like the term addictive personality. I don't like putting, tying uh, any kind of a mental health problem to a person's personality or like who they are as a person. So that's a term I think we're really working hard in substance use. Um, well, what, would you, substance what would you use. offer in, in its place? Yeah, so I'd offer like some horrible term like uh, that's way wordy, like a person who's at risk for developing a substance use disorder. Um, <laughs> so I'm like, that's the other thing. Psychologists, we like love and mental health people, we love to like use destigmatizing language and that's a big focus right now. Um, but it doesn't fit with like the English language and how people speak. So um, so that's what I'd throw out there. I mean, I just, the, the term, I don't like uh, personality. There, we have this whole category of diagnoses called personality disorders and and I've worked a lot with people who have the symptoms of those things, but I think that's weird to call it like personality disorder. Like your personality's messed up. So um, that's just a personal thing I have. So I would say, yeah, that, but you, so David, you, you identified one, which is what we call um, executive functioning. So one risk that risk factor that we have that people have, that's either you have a genetic risk factor for this and then it's influenced by environment too, but is uh, is called executive functioning. And that's like your ability to say, hey, whoa, no, I don't want to do that because this other thing's happening tomorrow. And so it's that marshmallow test that you probably have all heard of, you know, where they ask the kids like, hey, kids, come in. Yeah. Hey, kid, do you want one marshmallow now? Or you want to wait for five? So you heard, I heard a bunch of two marshmallows in your thinking when you're talking about that drug experience. Yeah, um, definitely. I was, I would, I, I am that kid who waited and got five marshmallows. I'm definitely <laughs> that, that person. He's a multiple marshmallow man. Well, marshmallow I, man. I will say I don't care for marshmallows and never. Yeah, have. neither do I. They're gross. No, um, s'mores. You guys don't care about s'mores. Yeah. If people are eating s'mores by fire, them. you say pass. Yeah, that's no. Oh, I, I mean, uh, they have and we just my uh, um, sister and sister-in-law. We were we have this annual uh, thing where we go down to Atlanta. You know, now we've got a kid. We're down there a bunch, or you know, pre-COVID at least. But um, they're one of their big things is s'mores. They get a fire pit. They and I'm like, nope. Wow, I'm good. Zero, none. So I think there—that's one risk factor we know of. 
Another one is is just negative affect, like how how much negative emotions you're carrying around, and that includes things like stress, depression, anxiety. And so you could see in this episode of this of the show, um, you know, especially or if you watched the episode before that, you could hear about Lori's life and the amount of trauma that she'd been through, the amount of stress she was under. The um, so those those that's another big risk factor. Um, and then the, and then the other one is, yeah, just how drawn you are to a drug. So we have in all of our brains, right. We have this reward pathway. So it's that same reward pathway that, you know, when, when you are, uh, falling in love, when you are, or do something, you have a pat on the back, when people laugh at your show, like it's that, that part of your brain just gets activated. And what your description of using crack demonstrates is that, that dr- those drugs, drugs of, of misuse and drugs that you can become addicted to. can hijack that pathway and they can impact that pathway immediately. So for some people, that's just more accessible that that should, and some, Mm. from some drugs that the ways you ingest drugs, it's, it's easier to get it faster into your brain. What we know about addiction is the faster it can get to your brain and the bigger doses that you can absorb without having an adverse reaction, the more likely you are to develop an addiction. So a person who goes out, has a couple when they're 15, has a couple wine coolers and throws up all day the next day, probably not going to go on to, to develop an alcohol use disorder. Or they're less likely to, as opposed to the 15-year-old who drinks a case of beer, doesn't have a hangover, shows up to school the next morning. Um, that person's more likely to be able to, to go on to develop an alcohol use disorder because they don't have that initial adverse reaction to the, to the drug. And then the other one real quick thing I'd mention is you could see it throughout this whole, this whole series, but specifically this episode, is just lack of parental involvement and lack of supervision. And that was clearly is a huge risk factor is if you don't have a caring adults um, over you and looking after you, you're going to engage in these kind of behaviors or more likely to. It struck me that, uh, you know, towards the end of the episode, they're interviewing the kids and the kids seem, you know, the kids were savvy enough to know what was going on. And, and uh, I mean, they don't get into it, but those kids seem pretty, you know, solid, you know, like they did not go down that same road. And perhaps that's because, you know, uh, you know, they, they just, they watched every authority figure they knew just using and abusing, you know, the other thing that's hard with this is it wasn't a journalistic piece. And so I wondered as I watched it, like how many of these are her friends who will actually talk to her would actually agree to be in the show and how many of those kids you know, who could, who looked, who had their lives together. Like how many kids aren't there because they're in a lot of trouble. And I think a couple in the third episode, they actually talked about some of the kids that have gone on to develop their own addiction. They talked about like a young, one of the kids um, is now in his thirties and has congestive heart failure from his chronic addiction um, and is not doing so great. So I wondered how much of the evidence was sort of being fairly presented there. That's a good point. Yeah. Cause it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't, it was more, sensationalistic than journalistic yeah again uh if you're just tuning in i don't know why you'd start here but we're talking about queen of meth which is exclusively on discovery plus uh about a lady named Lori arnold who yes is tom arnold's sister and essentially ran a meth empire in the 80s um and uh and yeah brought to light a, a few things i didn't know one of which she was talking about the pros of meth for a little while uh, and made it sound pretty awesome. So Mike, can you sell me on meth right now? Yeah, so meth is a yeah stimulant drug. I mean, David already talked about crack cocaine and meth are very similar 
Um, they're both stimulant drugs. They both are usually smoked um, in a very similar way. And they also have a lot of other toxic ingredients in them that um, in addition to the to the stimulant drug specifically. So the thing that you get from meth is, yeah, you get an immediate high. You get an immediate high. You get an immediate euphoria. Uh, you can stay awake for days. You hear about people. like sounds like this was you're just about to go down this path, David. But like people will party I, for like I, four to, days. I've, I have done uh, meth uh, probably dozens of times. Uh, crack was just Okay, one. so you should be asking David this question. Um, I was going to say, I didn't know this. Yeah. Well, I, it's not something I <laughs> advertise. <laughs> Put out there very often. <laughs> it's not on my, not at the top of my CV. But, uh, um, and, and this is over the years. I'm not saying this is, this sure. is uh, over a long, long time when I, when I, I don't even remember when I first had it, but it's, it was, um, you know, it's very similar to crack. It wasn't as, um, immediate and constant and and then short-lived is crack but it was uh um but it yeah you just if you're in a bad mood you're instantly in a good mood if you don't i'm gonna hang in and just smoke weed and watch tv takes you know no i'm gonna go out and i'm gonna go to the bar i don't even have to know anybody i'm gonna go uh see what's out there and live life and um you know so it had that element to it Okay, sounds pretty great. Uh, you heard it here. If you're just tuning in, David Cross uh, promoting meth. Uh, promoting check it out. It. I'm not promoting it. I'm not. Promoting oh, okay. It. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> it just sounded cool to me. I've never done meth. It sounded good. I I don't want to just be at home all the time. Be nice to go out sometimes. Um, no, so I'm sure there are huge cons as well. Did you experience these cons, David? Mm, not really. I mean, uh, if I one negative thing would be it would allow you to um it's kind of similar to the coke in this way it allows you to uh drink way more than you normally could and you oh, wow. will suffer from that either later that night or the next day um and you also have to you know you lose a day you lose you you know whatever time you're spending on that is that's you have to you have to count uh, the next 24 hours to to 36 hours are gone you're going to be recovering in bed not feeling good feeling guilty feeling nauseous and uh at some point it becomes you know uh what is it worth to you and also you know that it's terrible for you you know that it's it's uh and and just awful thing to put into your body and your brain. And, um, and you're aware of that, you know? Um, uh, but that is, you know, not to say that there, there was a reason I did it a number of times because I really enjoyed it. And I, and I, you know, if, if it didn't have any of those negative aspects, I, you know, not, not now that I have a kid, but before I would take it. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, Mike. I mean, this—it sounds like there. It like hijacks your brain in several ways. I mean, I I didn't even know about the the fact that it allowed you to drink a bunch more. How does how does that work? Yeah, or like drive your truck all the way across the United States <laughs> two days. I mean, like if you anything you want to get done, it's a way to get it done, right? Like it's not. Uh, I think Dave did a great job describing the positives and negatives of it. So I mean, there's 
the thing with meth is and stimulants in general, like cocaine, is there's two kinds of patterns of use. There's there's people who use it just episodically, like as a party drug, um, or or in a specific situation. So they might use it once or twice, like at or over a few days, once a month. Um, and then there's other people, like many of the people you saw in these in this in the show that develop a an addiction, develop a dependence, as we used to call it. Um, or now we call it severe substance use, uh, substance use disorder, severe type. So they develop tolerance, they develop a physiological addiction to the drug and they need to have it. Otherwise they feel really horrible all the time. And so I think those are the two patterns that we see with cocaine or with methamphetamine use. And, and I also was reading a little bit about meth mouth. Uh, can you describe how that happens or why that happens? So I don't know. Yeah. I think it's because of the, like David was saying, the toxicity of the, the, the stuff that you're ingesting that is in meth for people who use methamphetamine frequently, they have chronic disabling dental problems to the point of a lot of folks who need complete, you know, dental replacements. And so that's, that's one thing if you think about like recovery, like it's hard enough if you become addicted to meth, let's say, and you lose your house, you lose your family, you lose so much. Um, and then you're trying to get back on track and you don't have teeth, like, right? Like, it's like, it's just another thing you got to right. deal with. And so I, yeah, that's, that is a huge barrier to recovery for a lot of people, actually. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. The break is over. Here we go back to the show about science. Was it a different uh, scenario in 1985 when this was happening as far as the information we had about meth? Like, was there some confusion as to what it does? back then that we know better now? I don't know, because I was you know, like a kid then. But I will say that scientifically, I think we knew. I think we knew. We know so much about cocaine and, and we know so much about amphetamines that I think we knew plenty about crystal meth, like from a scientific perspective. Um, but did all the doctors around the United States know that? Probably not. Did all, and you could see it in this in the show. Did the regular folks know about it? No, like they, it was, it's a fun mm -hmm. party drug. Like, right. Um, so if you're a person who lives in a small town and there's this exciting thing and everybody's using it, you think, you know, whatever, I'll try it. And it's fun and it's exciting. And you maybe have like the experience David talked about with the negatives afterwards. But um, so I don't think people were as that that in, as informed about it as they were about other drugs. And then the reaction from the federal government was to say, no, you know, you saw it in the show, say no to drugs um, and to increase enforcement and to. Uh, not offer more treatment necessarily or come up with new treatments that would help, but to focus more on the drug enforcement and the sort of uh, unrealistic prevention, like just say no. And uh, my other question was about the purity you you mentioned before. Um, like, how, how does that make a difference? And I mean, my, I'm, I'm, my knowledge is essentially that I watched Breaking Bad. So I don't know if that's legit or accurate. So I wanted your take on that. So I've never seen Breaking Bad. I may be the only person I know who's never seen it. Um, mostly because I like to, I like to keep my work at work. My wife like loves reality TV shows. She's also a psychologist, and she loves all reality TV shows. But I like, I like to just keep my work at work. It's, and so when I come home, story. I don't watch any Forget of that kind that. of stuff. I'm sure it's, it's good a great story. story. All right, great TV shows you know, ever. You know what? Yeah, got to agree with them. All right. Well, dude, I'll, dude, 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 dude. I'll take, I'll, okay. All right. I'll watch it. So, okay. So purity, it's terrifying. I'm not going to beat around the bush, man. Back then in the eighties, the purity of, 
of, of meth and you heard it, they talked about cutting it. She talked about cutting it on purpose, partially to make more money, but also partially to, 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 because, you know, it's less, a little less dangerous. But so the purity of methamphetamine now is in like the 90% purity. Before it was like, I'm not going to know the same number, but it was like 30% pure. And, in, and, and so we're in this new methamphetamine epidemic right now that's closely tied to fentanyl, which is a hugely dangerous opioid. And so fentanyl's super potent opioid, synthetic opioid, and it's being produced and distributed in the con- with, with Chris, this new version of meth, which is in the purity level of like 90%. So last year, I think, I don't know, quote me exact numbers, but we had 70,000 people die from drug wow. overdoses. Almost half of those are, close to half are methamphetamine specific and half, and wow. in, 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 in that's, are involved methamphetamine, sorry, involved methamphetamine. And half of the methamphetamine overdoses have no opioids involved. Um, and so we had this opiate epidemic starting with dr- um, starting with um, prescription drugs, transitioning to heroin, then to fentanyl. And now, right now, where I'm being called in and asked for help um, by, you know, policymakers or states um, or providers is, is really around this really potent, um, dangerous version of methamphetamine. So again, before rare to die from a methamphetamine overdose um, and kind of tough to do now pretty pretty dangerous stuff the stuff that's out there is potentially really dangerous what is the reason um that people are cutting uh various drugs with fentanyl what is that is that cost effective or is it what does it do why did they do that it's a really good question i my understanding it's basically that we've the, that's where the production is coming from. The production is easier. It's easier right now to produce and sell fentanyl. At first, it was cutting it in to save money and to maybe deliver a, a more potent product um, to people that, that maybe they were desiring. Um, but now, yeah, it's tough to find heroin and it's easy to find fentanyl in, in most cities and in, in it's spreading into rural areas now. So I think it's a production area. Again, that's not my expertise. I'm a treatment person, but my understanding is really it's a it's a production sort of where it's coming from kind of issue. Wow, I mean, and what responsibility do you think the pharmaceutical companies have? Because it seems like that's a big part of this, right? Yeah. So I mean, I think initially they had a lot of responsibility. Um, you know, every state right now, including ours, has a either a settlement in progress or a case that's gonna that's in court. Um, Native tribes specifically are another example of, of communities that were really de- differentially negatively impacted by the opiate epidemic caused by the um, pharmaceutical companies. And there was, you know, knowledge. I still remember in school and remember I'm a psychologist, so like I don't prescribe drugs. So I um, but I remember in school back in like 2004, we were these when Oxy was coming, Oxycontin was coming out. And it was being marketed as this unaddic- opioid that wasn't addictive because it was half-life, would, it would spread out all day. So it was totally safe. So that's what we were told by drug companies. And you'd go to like the free lunch you'd get. So we're not allowed to get those free lunches anymore um, for good reason. So we, but yeah, it, but that was totally a lie. And we knew they knew it was a lie. All their research suggested it wasn't true. But at the same time in, in our graduate school for psychology, we were told, hey, you know what? You want to stay away from opioids to manage pain in people who have mental health problems. You want to stay away from. There's no evidence that that opioids um, that really work for chronic pain. It's re- they're really for acute pain and for cancer, chronic cancer pain or pain related to cancer care. 
And so I, I feel like, yeah, the drug companies are responsible, but also our provider community, we, we knew that. I mean, we, we knew. Right. Um, and, uh, we, and, and so I think there's shared responsibility there. And then, yeah, so we created a demand. And then um, the government and providers and all of us have worked hard to clamp down on those opioid access to those opioids as legal opioids. But then there's been a legal market that's been, you know, sprung up to, to meet that demand. Wow. Well, I hope someone was punished for some reason. My brain goes straight to like, oh, nothing happened to the people that. Oh. No, nothing yeah, happened. it's white collar crime. I mean, people had to pay billions of dollars. They had to they lost money. But I don't think um, and I don't know the ins and outs of this right now, but I don't think. No, the Sacklers cut a specific deal that where they paid a certain amount of money and but also ensured that they wouldn't uh, face, you know, any kind of prison time. Awesome. Great. Classic America move. Uh, Sweet. Well, um, listen, I I, I thank you both. We're we're running short on time here. But uh, but David, I know you have these shows coming up in Brooklyn. But if there's anything else you want to tell people about, please uh, do so. Uh, No, (laughs) I don't really have anything. Uh, I mean, there's a handful of things that will be coming out in the who knows when. Uh, But and I don't. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'll, if you're in the New York area, I'm doing shows. Uh, I think they're all in, all the ones that are left are in Brooklyn, I believe. Um, but, yeah, you can go on my website, officialdavidcross.com, that I have all the information. And I will be taping two sets at the Bell House in early November and um, putting a special out with that material. Man, so cool. Can't wait for that. I'm sure no one needs to hear me say it, but if you haven't seen David and you get the opportunity, run, sprint, get tickets immediately. He's the best. You're simply the best. Uh, so I thank you for being here. You're simply the Um Mike, anything you'd like to tell people about or promote, let people know? No, I can't stop that. Go get vaccinated. Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, keep, you know, we've got lots of great resources now, um, including treatments for methamphetamine, which is what I'm an expert in. And we're getting those out to people and they're becoming increasingly available. So if you are a person who's struggling with addiction or know somebody who is, um, reach out, seek help. We've got effective interventions now that we didn't have back in 1980. Nice. Okay. That is good to know. Yeah. Everyone reach out to Mike personally. Uh, go visit him at home. Uh, he will help you out with whatever you need. Thank you for offering that up. And uh, again, thank you both for, for being here. It was a great conversation. I really Absolutely, appreciate man. it. Absolutely, man. My pleasure. Thank you. And Mike, nice to meet you. Thanks, Ethan. Nice to meet you too. Bye-bye. Get exclusive science shows, nature documentaries, and more real-life entertainment on Discovery+. Plus. Go to discoveryplus.com slash goodbadscience to start your seven-day free trial. That's discoveryplus.com slash goodbadscience. Look at the bad, the science of credits, credits. Hosted and produced by Ethan Eidenberg. Executive producer, Brett Kushner. Supervising producer, Emily Feld. Producer, Barbie Rose. Editor, Michael Feld. Talent Booker, Samantha Barella. Post coordinator, Jason McCarris. And research PA, Ali Rudenstein. Bye bye.